Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We are one week on from the election of Donald Trump. Uh, I think we've decompressed a little, but to be honest, I don't think we've decompressed that much. A little bit later in this week's episode, I'm going to be talking to Judith Butler, who, as well as being one of the world's leading feminist philosophers, is also a major public intellectual, not just in the United States, in Europe as well. And I know a lot of people are going to want to hear her take on the result, and in particular, what she thinks this means for democracy. Apparently, as a country, we have voted through democratic means for a candidate who may well destroy constitutional democracy as we know it. And we also talk about what this result and the state of American politics tells us about gender and rage. It's worth looking at how many white men either identified with Trump or were willing to vote for him, not just with an exhilarated sense of misogyny, but also an exhilarated sense of racism. First, I've got Helen Thompson and Aaron Rapport here with me, and we're going to answer a few of the questions that we got after last week. We did a Facebook Live experiment. It was a kind of experiment. And we got a lot of response from that, including many people asking us about things they wished we had talked about. So we're going to pick a few, and we're going to try, if not answer them, at least to talk about them now. And I think these are fairly typical of some of the things that people are asking, but also worrying about. So, Erin, I'll start with this one. Um, I'll read you the question and you tell me what the answer is. Okay. How seriously should we take Trump's statement about putting Clinton behind bars? More to the point, how seriously should we take any of Trump's loose policy statements during the campaign? Was his campaign rhetoric a good indication of the kind of presidency he'll undertake? I think we decide to underestimate Trump's commitment to his policy statements at our own peril. Some people have been saying our job, and by our job, I guess I mean U.S. citizens, is to kind of hope for the best but prepare for the worst. Yeah, which is easier said than done. Which is easier said than done. So in terms of locking Hillary Clinton up, this is something that has been downplayed now by the incoming Trump administration pointing out that we still have an independent judiciary, theoretically an independent uh, Department of Justice, independent uh, judges, right? Appointing a special prosecutor would be something unprecedented in terms of attacking a former political opponent. Furthermore, Hillary Clinton's been pretty thoroughly vetted in terms of her emails by a hostile Congress. And so it doesn't seem like there's a lot of evidence there. So this would be pretty much a wild goose hunt in my personal opinion, but uh, that doesn't mean he will do it. I would say, though, that it's within the realm of possibility. It would just be a large waste of political capital, in my estimation. And Helen, the, the thousands of people at his rallies who were chanting, lock her up, so the, the new mantra, and this is now being attributed to our friend Peter Thiel, although I think other people said it first, which was commentators like us took him literally and not seriously, whereas his supporters took him seriously and not literally. So we went to believe when they were saying lock her up, they were just kind of being sort of loud and ironic. They didn't mean it. I think you've got to draw a distinction here between what Trump himself said and what he literally said and what his supporters said. Let's start with the supporters. Supporters literally were shouting lock her up. If you look at what Trump said in the matter, he said that he was asked his attorney general to appoint a special prosecutor, as Aaron said. And the result of that might be that she will be locked up because in his view that she deserved to go to jail. I think on this question that if you look at what he said so far about the Clintons that it's been pretty friendly in some sense and it doesn't look to me 
as Aaron said, that he wants to expend political capital uh, on appointing a um, special um, prosecutor, at least for the time being. If you look at the appointment of special prosecutors in the past, they've tended to be as time has gone on within administrations rather than at the beginning of them. In terms of, of, of what his supporters might think about the situation, I think a lot depends on what else he's willing to deliver to them or on what he's willing to um, compromise. And one of the things I think that's most striking so far about his pronouncements is how uninterested he seems in his drain the swamp agenda. There's pretty much been nothing that he said that he looks like he's serious about that kind of fits with that. And if you look at some of the people he's suggesting or at least the media are suggesting he may be nominating to some of these positions, they're not people who you would say are particularly sympathetic to that drain-the-swamp agenda. So do you think there's going to have to be a symbolic drain-the-swamp moment? And if it's not jailing Hillary Clinton, what what's that going to look like? Perhaps the symbolic not draining the swamp moment will be clinging very fiercely to Steve Bannon as his chief strategist. So yesterday he announced that uh, Rens Priebus, uh, former head of the RNC, will be his chief of staff. Trump also announced that Steve Bannon, who is the former head editor of Breitbart News, will be his chief strategist and immediately got a lot of pushback because Steve Bannon is basically uh, received a lot of praise from white supremacist, white nationalist groups. He is, however, not exactly what one would consider a creature of Washington. And so I think perhaps standing up for Steve Bannon and not backing down on that particular appointment will be the symbolic uh, draining the swamp moment. And as people have been saying about Steve Bannon, all that bad stuff may be true, but he also made a lot of money out of Seinfeld. So that balances it out, maybe. Right, let's come on to the next question. This is just a straightforward question. You can give a short answer or a slightly longer answer. How much is Obama to blame for the mess that we're in? I think that Obama has to bear a great deal of responsibility for what has happened to the Democratic Party. Because if you look at the state of affairs that the Democratic Party was in back in 2008 when he won the presidential nomination, Democrats were in a pretty good position. They had um, control of both houses of Congress. They had the majority of state um, governors. I'm not entirely sure what the balance was on state legislatures, but they were in a much better position than they are um, now. And Obama essentially won the, the nomination and then the presidency for the Democrats on a bet that the Democrats could be the party of the future on a narrow but deep coalition, one which essentially forgot about many of the older voters or the older groups of voters that had voted Democrats. I don't mean older in a generational sense, I mean in terms of demographics. It narrowed the Democratic coalition down to a coalition of African Americans, Hispanics, younger voters and suburban younger voters in particular and unmarried women. And it turns out that actually you can't be the dominant party in American politics on the basis of such a narrow coalition on the hope that you can simply get large numbers of people in those demographic groups to turn out to vote at every single election that you need them to turn out to. And the consequences is the Democratic Party uh, is an incredibly weak position, not just in terms of national politics, but in terms of um, state politics as well, that it was a bet that went disastrously wrong. And much more of that is on him, ironically, than on Hillary Clinton, who in 2008, when she was fighting for the nomination, was actually trying to hold on to a broader coalition for the Democratic Party than the one that ended up winning. Aaron, and one of the things that's being said about Obama at the moment is the other bet he made 
once he lost control of Congress, was that he could use the executive authority of the president to get through various measures, particularly on things like the environment, that would never pass Congress. And the risk, of course, was that were Hillary Clinton not to succeed him, but someone very unsympathetic to his agenda, what he'd done was built up the capacity of the executive, not just to enact these regulations, but to undo them as well. And actually what he's bequeathing to Trump, not just for his party, but for the way that American government works, is an enhanced role for a presidency that now is going to try and undo his agenda. I agree with that statement, and I disagree with what Helen said previously. So agreeing with (laughs) that statement, I would say yes, that Obama has, especially on national security affairs, done things like expand the drone program, uh, not really done anything to change uh, NSA powers in terms of surveillance, and used uh, yeah a fair amount of executive power really to fight the war on terror, uh, war in Afghanistan, so on and so forth. That means that his successor is going to be able to use a lot of those powers as well. Now, in the grand history sweeping scope of things, uh, I think increase in executive power is going to come along with uh, increasing polarization and gridlock in Congress because any president is going to feel compelled to do something, right, if the legislature won't back him. The reason I disagree with Helen is basically for a very simple reason. If you look at Obama's 2012 performance, and then if you look at Clinton's 2016 performance, and you look at these areas of the country that are white working class areas in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, so on and so forth, Obama did much better, both in terms of people voting for him and people just turning out in these areas. So from my perspective, just based on that alone, it's very hard to put the dismantling of, of the Obama coalition, so to speak, on his shoulders. But I think that's my point in a way, is is that the, the model, the bet, if you like, was is that you could have a narrow coalition that would turn out, that you could deeply turn it out. And actually, when large numbers of African Americans in particular in those Rust Belt states don't turn out to vote, then you've got a problem on your hands. And that, that's where those missing votes are. And th- there is one kind of test of leadership and the legacy that a leader bequeaths, particularly a charismatic leader, which is, have they thought about what this politics looks like if you take me out of the picture and replace me with a less charismatic version of me? Because the danger of it is that the, the charisma, as it were, creates an illusion of stability and semi-permanence. And actually, that was the only thing that was holding it together. Obama actually kind of took a shot at Hillary Clinton yesterday in his press conference, the first press conference he held after the election, by saying, basically, you know, Hillary Clinton's got a lot of good ideas, but you actually have to go and communicate those ideas to people. And I think that was basically his way of saying she did not spend enough time on the ground in the areas that Helen is pointing out, did not get the turnout, did not mobilize. People perhaps were just counting on taking for granted that these people, because they turned out for Obama, would turn out for Clinton. So if anything, I kind of agree with Obama's implicit assertion. I, I, I put the blame much more on the Clinton campaign than I would put it on the Obama administration. But as Helen said, it was a bet. And one of the things that this was a losing bet about was that this thing would have legs when you take him out. And well, it may be that it doesn't. I also think that it isn't just really a question of his you know, charisma doing the work here. Is you know, So much of American politics, even though we like to talk about it in rather more dramatic and in some sense interesting terms, turns on demographics. These last elections going back to 2000 have turned on demographic turnout. And what we can see is is that the group that most did not turn out to vote of Democrat voters was African-Americans. Now, did they not turn out because of the fact that uh, Hillary had a charisma failure in relation to Obama? Or did they not turn out because Democratic Party politics has got bound up with identity politics and it's much easier for African-Americans to turn out when they're voting for an African-American candidate rather than a white woman? 
right female um, candidate and I think that there is there is something in that and I think there's something actually in the argument that actually if something has cost the Democrat Party more than anything else is the way that it allowed identity politics in 2008 um, to become so central in the contest of having uh, a contest between an African-American man and uh, and a woman. Okay and then one last one and this isn't a question it's a statement and you can respond. In recent years everyone got it wrong the UK general election result in 2015, presidential and parliamentary elections in Poland in 2015, UK Brexit referendum result in 2016. Actually, it's not in the message here, but we could add to this uh, the Israeli elections, the Colombian peace deal. There's a whole range of things where not just pollsters, but pundits got it wrong. Go back to the message. There are elections in France in 2017. All I can say is watch this space and we'll see what happens now. So is this one in a sequence of unfortunate or surprising events which may well include the election of Marine Le Pen or is that a step too far do you think Aaron? I don't think it's a step too far at all um, it seems to me that the errors are correlated across political spaces right They're, they don't seem to be independent of one another because the error consistently seems to be overconfidence on the side of the left about how much of the vote the left is going to win. And that clearly now, I think, seems to be developing into more of a pattern than a coincidence. But on, but on that, if the runoff in the French presidential election is hard right versus soft right, do you mm -hmm. think that's still going to apply? Well, all I'll say is this. I have much less confidence in the ability of polls uh, to predict winners than I used to. Uh, polling is basically, uh, when it comes to campaigns, it's two things. It's two very simple things, despite all the bells and whistles. Predicting who's going to turn out and then predicting who they're going to vote for and multiplying those two probabilities together. And the interesting thing in the U.S. case is the polls were actually at a national level right in terms of the popular vote, but they were wrong at the state level and they were wrong at finer geographical levels. And I think that has a lot to do with having a very kind of skewed prediction of who is going to turn out. And that is hard to correct for because God does not drop a matrix of variables telling you who is going to turn out to vote from the heavens that you can plug into your statistical models. I think that whatever is the case about the polling, that there is a possibility that this French election is going to turn out differently, in part for the reason that you say is, is that this time we're going to have a soft right candidate in play against a, a far right candidate. And none of the dynamics that we've looked at so far in these elections have been quite like that. I mean, assuming that Dupe is the soft right candidate and you know, it's not a foregone conclusion yet that, that he will be, he will have his bases covered on more of the issues that have caused problems for establishment parties and establishment candidates than the elections that we have seen so far. He's not going to be fighting you know, this election as far to the left uh, as Hillary Clinton on a number of issues was, or as far to the left as the Labour Party in Britain in 2015 um, did. In that sense, I think that he's got a significantly better chance of, of, of holding ground. It's going to be a lot more difficult to cast him as a cosmopolitan liberal or the other labels that have been put on establishment parties establishment candidates um, in the elections that we've seen and i should say there's things that are going to test some of this predictive capacity before we even get to france we've got a referendum coming up in italy there's a presidential election the rerun of the austrian presidential election and one thing that in that sequence we have noticed is these plebiscitary elections particularly where there's a choice of two other things that are proving very hard to call and it may be actually that the Italian referendum is going to be the event that signals that dramatic changes are afoot in Europe well before we get to the French election. I think that it's quite possible that the Italian referendum will trigger another round of the Eurozone crisis 
in a way that is going to bring to the fore the banking crisis aspect of the uh, eurozone crisis as well as the the problem of the bond spreads for the periphery uh, members if that's the case if we're in a deep eurozone crisis in the beginning of 2017 then i think it's it's almost inconceivable to think that the french and the german government in particular are not going to have some response to that is as they will then know that if they allow things to carry on as they are that there is a significant chance that marie le pen will end win the French presidency. At that point, I think you can say that the EU is in such deep existential crisis that all bets are off about what would come next. If you have a president of France who is not committed to France's membership of the European Union, then the European Union, in the way in which we know it, simply cannot cannot continue to exist. And on financial the financial side of things too, uh, people are starting to predict now higher inflation and interest rates in the United States based on the Trump campaign pledge to increase infrastructure spending. Now, I will say that I think infrastructure spending is something that's important for the United States to do. Basically, the uh, U.S. group of civil engineers gives our infrastructure something like a D grade when you look at the totality of bridges, water infrastructure, so on and so forth. But if you do have kind of inflationary pressures, uh, higher interest rates, questions about the value of the dollar going forward, and you combine that with instability in Europe, we could be uh, on track for another recession. I'm not saying it would be as deep as 2008, but it would be kind of in line with uh, business cycle theories of economics, and uh, that will raise more questions about the long-term durability of, I think, all sitting incumbents at the moment. Thank you to Helen and to Aaron. Now to my conversation with Judith Butler. On this podcast, we've been asking people about Brexit night and their experiences as the vote unfolded. And I think we're probably going to have that as a motif now about Trump as well. I began by asking Judith Butler what her experience had been of election night itself. Well, I had invited several people over for food and wine, and they started arriving early, about an hour and a half or two hours before we understood the direction the vote was going. And two of my friends, one of them is Mexican-American, one of them is Cuban-American, and they came in and they said, oh, the Latinas, they are all showing up for Hillary. We're going to win the day. You will be grateful to us. We've been treated so badly for so many years, and now we're saving you. Good jokes about the Latino vote, and in particular, the Latina vote. And then it started to change, and we were watching. There were about eight or ten of us, uh, an international group of people, actually. And and there was general disbelief, and a couple of people understood right away that Trump was going to win, and others held on to futile hopes to the bitter end. But what was interesting is that we all we all dispersed before the final announcement was made because we didn't want to hear it and we didn't want to see it so we all knew it was coming but we didn't we didn't want to see the fanfare we didn't want to see the ceremony we certainly i think didn't particularly want to see trump's face quite frankly and as it unfolded and people in britain had this experience on brexit night which is a sense of shock at the result but also a kind of feeling of surprise at a country being revealed to you that wasn't in some ways the country you thought you lived in. Yes. Did you have that on the night or subsequently? I did because, of course, we had very specific demographic maps on several channels showing the various counties in Pennsylvania or the various counties in Ohio 
or the various counties in Michigan, and they were all quite alarming. And what we realized, and I think um, this was a very sobering realization, is that outside of the urban centers and the centers where most of the well-educated people live, there was vast anger at the present administration. There was vast anger at the economic conditions. Um, And there was some unchecked rage against migrants, against racial minorities, against Black Lives Matter, against women. So we had to deal with the fact that there was a, a popular vote out there, although she did win, Hillary did win the popular vote. There was enough of a popular vote out there that we were not aware of, and that was obviously willing to vote for Trump. And and I think we felt somewhat indicted as intellectuals, as um, complacent urban intellectuals who thought, oh, no rational person would vote for him. No thinking person would vote for him. He can't, you know, he, it's absurd. It's it's impossible. So we were out of touch. I think what one of the insights we've had to accept is that many of us who speak to one another on the left liberal spectrum in the United States, we're out of touch with just how angry that electorate was and how much hatred was unleashed by Trump and what the economic situation was for so many people, such that they turned to Trump thinking that their their situation would change. So I think as shocked as we were, we also felt indicted uh, for our myopia and our uh, self-referentiality. We, we were not in touch with what was happening. And is your sense now that this has been revealed? And again, it's as a British citizen, we feel like this is the second time. So we've had a few months to be reflecting on similar things in this country. Yes. That there's another country out there and that the gap between the two perspectives is huge. But is it your sense that it was unleashed by Trump or that it was always there and that it simply, it was sort of out of sight. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I think there are rival interpretations of this, one of which is that a particular set of circumstances came together. The country was moving in a certain direction. And if it's turned back the other way, it's it's because a, a few things came together to make that happen. For other people, that was always there. It was always waiting for its moment to, to reveal itself. Mm-hmm. I think that what was most interesting to me was Bernie Sanders' editorial in the New York Times, which opens with his claim that he was not surprised. And I think the reason he was not surprised is that he knew that a great deal of the anger in the broader American public was economic. The destruction of the manufacturing base, the loss of jobs, the increase in temporary labor, the loss of pensions, the the idea that the future horizon has been closed for many people and for and for the next generation. And what I realize, of course, is that what Bernie was trying to do was give a left interpretation of that economic situation and to persuade people that what they wanted or the way out of that economic situation of suffering was to develop a left analysis, a left solidarity, and to move towards a notion of social democracy, uh, if not democratic socialism. I think he, he couldn't really peddle the last so effectively to the American public, but maybe they're ready now. 
maybe 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 it's time uh, <laughs> in any case i i do think that that the sanders campaign worked with people's rage he was angry and it tapped into that anger i don't believe the clinton campaign tapped into that anger they said trump is full of hate we are full of love and of course, I'm in favor of love. I prefer love over hate. You know, if I had to vote, I'll vote for love. Love um, might even just win in an election, you know, these, did, even these days. I did, might vote just for, win. I did vote for love, effectively. But what happened was that that rage was abandoned by the Democrats, and Trump was able to monopolize that rage and to turn it to his political advantage. So I, that is that is what I think. Now, now that economic rage, I think, or rage over a, a very painful and difficult economic condition, I think does sometimes take the form of anti-migrant discourse and practice, racist discourse and practice, sexist discourse and practice. So we have many different kinds of rage coming together in the Trump win. And I don't mean to say that the economic rage is at the base of all other rages, but I think it can't be disarticulated from any of them, quite frankly. And I do think that the Clinton campaign thought that Trump's hatefulness would indict him and disqualify him. But actually, a large number of people identified with hateful rage and felt that their hateful rage was licensed and even liberated by Trump. And so what we're seeing on the street are we were seeing direct confrontations of white people with black people saying hideous things, white people with migrants or presumed migrants saying hideous things, open misogyny and homophobia, transphobia. So we're, we're seeing that unleashed in the public sphere now in, I think, some of the ways you also saw that in the immediate days after Brexit. There yeah, was, I think not on that scale. Not on it, that scale, but you had some some pretty hideous racist uh, sure. attacks on Polish yeah, people. Sure. And, and and a number of people felt free to express their racism in a way that they hadn't before. So, you know, hatred does get licensed <laughs> and augmented by election. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Actions such as these. One of the most extraordinary things for me about this election is that you know, there are some political scientists who have said we shouldn't be surprised because Trump performed pretty much as you would expect the Republican candidate to perform after two-term Democratic presidency. It's American politics going through one of its regular cycles. And yet everyone else looking in thought, but he's totally unlike any other candidate we've ever seen. So the fact that the voting public almost treated him as though he were simply the Republican nominee. I mean, if, if Rubio had won under these conditions, we would be thinking that's kind of how democracy often goes. Mm-hmm. But it's that somehow the rage and, and the hatred has been squeezed into this familiar electoral box. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is the thing that's unprecedented about this. It's that people voted for him as though he were just another candidate. Yes, I, th- I agree with you. <laughs> 
I think there are plenty of reasons to be surprised. I know there are pundits on the right and the left who say, why is anyone surprised? Because um, it's Trump. That's uh, why they're surprised. Acting, acting as if we're all naive or yeah. that we... we, we Unworldly, unrealistic. Yes, and we had idealistic ideas of our nation or something. But the truth is, is that, look, the, the Tea Party was a rageful and racist part of the Republican Party, but it was not the Republican Party norm. You know, we had Republican Party candidates like John Kasich, who doesn't speak in this way, doesn't argue in this way. The Republican Party also had the traditions of Goldwater and Rockefeller, a libertarian and even thoughtful, fiscally conservative group. I disagreed with them, but they were they were recognizable adversaries. But what has happened, I think, is that a populist there has been a populist turn, not so much to the Republican Party, but to this candidacy. So we saw many strongholds, Ohio and Pennsylvania among them, turn to Trump when usually they would be turning to the Democrats or trying to find a, a different way. Yeah, and that's the thing I say, if it had happened with Rubio, but Rubio wouldn't have been winning Pennsylvania, presumably. Yes, I think that's that's yeah. correct. Yeah. That's correct. And as you said, he didn't win the popular vote. And again, in this country, we're used to two-party systems producing these unusual results where one of the two parties does well, but not outstandingly in an election and somehow ends up with everything. Yes. And so here we have a candidate who didn't win really any more votes than Mitt Romney, whose party lost seats in the Senate, lost seats in the House, um, and he's wound up with everything. He's going to fill the place on the Supreme Court. Yes. It's a system that looks broken to me. It is broken. I think the Electoral College is a nonsensical institution. It's an anachronism. We don't know how to change it. And then people always seek to change it in the few weeks between the popular election and the Electoral College ratification of the vote. So right now there's I checked this morning, there were 4 million people who had signed a petition to abolish the Electoral College immediately. But we actually need a thoughtful and deliberate um, movement to abolish the Electoral College. It it actually does, I think, if you look back on it, I think it disenfranchises the massive numbers of people who live on the coasts, on yeah. either coast. And the people in your state who are voting after yes, the result was more or less That is, that is one, one problem. Voting for the loser in yeah. huge numbers. yes. So does it raise any questions for you about Trump's legitimacy? Because there is, I mean, I didn't even mention the fact that turnout was massively down too. Yes. So it's not as if that many people voted for him. Okay, many millions voted for him. But this is on a depressed turnout. He also managed either by accident or by, by design to depress the turnout for Hillary Clinton. Yes. But we have someone who now has extraordinary power and ability to shape America's future yes. on not overwhelming popular support by any means, and almost certainly actually pretty significant popular scepticism. Yes. What is this thing called democracy that we yeah. that we live with and that we take for granted? Yes. Well, making sense of the non-voting eligible uh, public is, I think, paramount at this moment. Around 50% of the eligible public did not vote. And I think there was disgust with the campaign and disillusionment with both candidates and a kind of not giving a damn. I, I don't know how many of those people have remorse at this moment. I would imagine some of them do. I did see, at least on the left, 
there were purists who thought, well, I'll only vote for Bernie or I'll only vote for Jill Stein, the independent candidate, but I can't bring myself to vote for Hillary. But they diminished in time. So I don't think that was a huge factor. I think that there's a broader demoralization or depolitization that happened in relationship to the campaign and that has also been growing over time in the United States. So the fact is that of the eligible voting public, Trump has about 25% support. And we could simply say, what does it mean that we have a system in which this one person has such enormous power with only 25% support? But we also have a second problem, which is even, I think, more frightening, or at least equally frightening, which is that apparently, as a country, we have voted through democratic means for a candidate who may well destroy constitutional democracy as we know it. And that's a paradox that I think political theorists have to think about. How is it that democracy can bring about anti-democratic outcomes or produce candidates with explicitly anti-democratic agendas? So I do worry. I'm not my own personal view is I'm not sure if we were to test Mr. Trump on the Constitution, whether he would know what's in it or be able to cite very much in it outside of perhaps the gun laws, uh, the, the the right to bear arms. But I think that we, we don't know whether he understands the Constitution as binding. He surely doesn't understand treaties with Europe as binding. He doesn't understand a number of legally binding policies as binding. I mean, what is the status of the law? Is it all a deal? Is it all is it all negotiable? Is is it all going to be treated like a market arena in which rights are swapped or obligations are jettisoned and we don't really know. So, I think there's a great deal of terror and not a lot that has been reassuring in the in the few days since his election. I know that many people are trying to figure out how best to enter the political field and one clear and immediate danger is is that of deportation. He's claiming that he will deport between two and three million. Mm. What what police resources, what army resources will he use to find and extradite those people? What happens to legal protections that are already in place? Will they be jettisoned? Will they be overridden through the invocation of security or emergency measures? Unfortunately, we did expand the presidential powers under Obama uh, so that due process can be suspended when there is a suspicion that someone or some group is a security threat. Now, we know how that logic works. That can expand indefinitely. And under this administration, this this coming one, uh, I think we have enormous fears. At this point, many people on the left are... I mean, some people are thinking, should there be a takeover of the Democratic Party by people who are further left? What, what's the sequel to Bernie? <laughs> but there's, a, I think, a more primary question, which is what kind of social movement and political movement do we need? And then perhaps we can think about party politics in the context of an existing social and political movement. But the social and political movement has to be focused on democratic rights and enfranchisement and protections against deportation and limits to the police state and limits to surveillance and the protection of minorities of all kinds. So at this point, I I don't know how to think about party politics or even the future of the Democratic Party. We all thought it was going to be the 
the Republican Party that was shredded to bits at the end of the election, but it's the Democratic Party that is. It needs to start from ground zero, but I think the party has to be based in a larger political movement, and the only thing that gives me hope at this moment is to see that there are informal modes of solidarity that are being established between different groups that haven't always understood their interests to be allied with one another. Do you think, given that the conventional understanding of what you do when you lose an election is you go into opposition, and so it's the idea of opposition which has a particular democratic meaning, yes. but the more radical alternative is resistance at some level. You you resist the regime. You don't necessarily, I mean, I'm not talking about armed resistance, but do you think resistance rather than opposition may be the appropriate response to a Trump presidency? Well, I do think resistance is part of what a radical democratic movement needs to engage in. I'm not sure I would say that resistance is all that needs to happen. My sense is that working within the parliamentary terms, as it were, as, as the Democrats now as an oppositional party, that will be important. But we've also seen that there's a refusal to negotiate on the part of the Republicans and the kinds of um, standoffs we've seen in the last months, especially the refusal to ratify the Supreme Court nominee, is just an indication of, of what's to come. The Republicans will doubtless run roughshod over the Democrats time and again. So the real question for us, those of us who, yes, I vote Democratic, but I am also part of a left that is certainly not defined by the Democratic Party, is how to expand a popular movement and how to expand forms of solidarity that go into some of these areas that have not been dealt with adequately by by the left, right? And have not been engaged adequately by the left. Like the manufacturing base, the farmers, uh, what's happening economically, what kind of appeal has to be made? What appeal did Bernie make and how can that be built upon? So I think we need a much more popular movement that's not just being articulated by urban intellectuals who are relatively isolated from popular movements and popular concerns. I suppose another way of of saying that is that we're we're dealing with populism in the United States. Uh, we're also dealing with an a possibly emergent fascism, quite frankly. We haven't thought about fascism as part of our own political history. We've had horrible segregationists, but you know George Wallace, I remember, is you know really horrible. We've had McCarthyites, uh, uh, but but, but those but, people but, didn't end up as president. No, and so and and I think there is a, a question of fascism. What what does it mean now? What does it mean on American soil? We need a, a really clear critique of that. But we also have populism, and that's not completely aligned with party politics. And, and that means that if there's going to be a mobilization of popular support for a left and a liberal political agenda, there has to be mobilization at the popular level. There has to be a way to move that popular energy and anxiety into a left framework. As you said, the economic conditions post-2008 produced on one side the Tea Party movement, but it also produced Occupy yes, it did. and Occupy Wall Street. So we've got a very unequal now consequence of that. So Occupy, I mean, Bernie was channeling some of that. Yes. But as a popular movement in its own right, as a democratic movement outside of party confines, what happened to that? Well, Where did it go and... and, and 
How can it be recaptured? Well, it's funny. I think it did emerge in Bernie's campaign, for sure. But I actually think Occupy had enormous success and continues to have success in identifying something that many people feel is very real about their economic lives, namely that the rich become richer and fewer and the poor become poorer and greater in number and that that seems to be the way in which economic inequality is accelerating in the United States and elsewhere. So that principle was was asserted and articulated by Occupy. It got taken up in public discourse. It even got taken up in presidential political discourse. And and with the work of Thomas Piketty and others who were able to give some documentation to that thesis, I think that it did change the ways in which people think about economics. Now, if you're a right-wing populist, you could look at that and say, yeah, the system is rigged. And the problem is that all these migrants are coming in and taking your jobs. Yes, the, the system is rigged. And I'm going to make sure that those jobs don't get exported to China, even though I myself export jobs to, to China. <laughs> uh, in, in other words, isolationism... Uh, racism, nationalism. So let's remember, there was some 5%, almost 10% of Bernie voters who thought they would rather go to Trump than Hillary. And that doesn't seem like a large number, but there's something telling about the fact that that anger could have gone one way or another, right? And and in fact, it, it makes a difference. We were not able, the Democratic Party was not able to take that anger and and articulate it into a political platform in the, once Bernie was out of the picture. And I do think that was a tragic loss. And we do now have this ultimate ironic consequence that both in this country, in the UK, and now in the United States, so we have a conservative prime minister, Theresa May, who explicitly said at her party conference speech that her party is now the party of the working class. Yes. And Trump said in his victory speech that his victory was a victory for the working class. And the language of class is back, of working class is back, which the Labour Party always was nervous about. And it's been appropriated by the right. Yes. It's extraordinary. Yes. And it's happened so quickly. Well, it's also interesting that those people who claim to be representing the working class are themselves responsible for policies that in fact, have devastated the working class. So there's there's a contradiction in it that is a, almost a kind of perfect ideological contradiction, right? It, it's masked. It's like, no, no, I have not done this. Uh, I, who pay no taxes, I, who have benefited from unregulated expansion of markets um, uh, and no oversight, <laughs> uh, uh, I am not part of the larger economic reality that has devastated the working class uh, or even devastated many people so that they're not even part of a working class their 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 jobs are intermittent they they don't know if they're employed or unemployed at any given moment i don't even know if we can call that the working class anymore it's more like the precariat um so i i do think there's a there's a masking of one's own complicity with the powers that have devastated people economically at the very moment in which those people, whether Theresa May or Donald Trump, who are not the same, but who are perhaps operating a similar rhetorical device, uh, claim to represent the working class. It's it's almost an ideological moment par excellence. So to finish, possible 
grounds for hope, maybe not, or maybe things could get worse. But as you said, there is a lot of rage. Not that many people voted for Trump. And actually in this country too, the Conservative Party, it has a parliamentary majority, but this is on a popular vote of about 36%. Yeah. The rage isn't going away. And a lot of the people who voted for these new programmes are going to be very disappointed. So the people who voted for Brexit in this country, the, the chances are the benefits that they were hoping to get will not be tangible. Mm -hmm. And Trump will let a lot of his supporters down. I think we can assume that however much he turns out to be better adept at the office that he now occupies than we might expect, he's still going to let them down. Yes. Now, obviously, one risk of that is the rage gets worse and we get a kind of doubling down on this politics. Mm -hmm. But presumably there's also a possibility that quite quickly there is another pivot because our politics is moving so fast and there are new opportunities here. I mean, this is very early in this moment where we have these Republican or Conservative leaders claiming to represent a group of people whom they will almost certainly let down. Yes. So is there grounds for hope there that actually this could change quite quickly again? Because at the moment, these parties look like they've got things locked up. The British Labour Party is in disarray. The Democrats are in disarray. Yes. But if we've learned anything in the last 18 months, it's moving very fast. Yes. I remember speaking to some friends uh, in Greece when Syriza had to capitulate to the Troika. And I said, ah, oh, you've lost. It's all terrible. They said, yes, it's true. We had to give in. We had to concede. But now there's a problem of implementation, right? Like, how? How are these deals going to be implemented? You know, and there are many sites of resistance, <laughs> like failure to pay. And we're the government. Re Renegotiating <laughs> re the terms of the deal to which they just agreed, not showing up, um, uneven implementation or, or refusal. These are kind of subversive moments in the field of implementation. Implementation is not automatic, right? And the same thing, an election puts somebody in power, but then he's got to formulate those policies and implement them. And what if there's widespread resistance and people don't implement them? What if they're not, they can't be implemented or there's enough disturbance that it's not as smooth as, as one thinks. And in Trump's case, that could include the security state itself, which yes. after all is going to be yes. ambivalent about many of the things yes. in the international arena that he stands for. Yes, it's true. I don't know. I think there, there might be non-implementation by those who are supposed to implement his policies. That would be nice to see. That would be a form of resistance or subversion. But I also, I think that we will find national and post-national forms of solidarity that will allow us to rethink the relationship of the left to the Democratic Party. And if anything, I think there will be a move to the left. I, I think that the Democrats will have to move to the left. They, they will have to deal with the working class. The New York Times will no longer be the sole <laughs> beacon. <laughs> uh, but in, in any case, I, I, I do think that th there is a possibility of a move to the left that could produce a counterforce in time. Um, I think we have to, to move beyond our, sh our shock and dismay in order to start organizing. But I, I do think that it's possible. I guess there's just one further point sure. that I would add, which is that many of my feminist colleagues understand this election result to be the consequence of, of an enormous misogyny either conscious or unconscious, and that Trump's attitudes towards women, his way of treating women, his sexual harassment, if, if not sexual predation, actually brought out among white men in particular a very profound identification 
a rage against women and a rage against feminism. It it seemed as if um, feminism was the was the superego that was keeping men from from hating women in the way that they do. And what Trump, of course, did was well, in Jacqueline Rose's terms, license the unconscious, so that those forms of once shameful misogyny became shamelessly expressed as they are being now. So some of the quite hideous remarks about Clinton and, and the ways in which she was treated as a woman do raise the question of whether the American public, or at least some group of them, would rather have a madman than, than a woman, uh, uh, because at least a man symbolizes power in a way that allows them to uh, solidify and exalt their own power. I also think it's worth looking at how many white men either identified with Trump or were willing to vote for him, not just with an exhilarated sense of misogyny, but also an exhilarated sense of racism. And the one statistic that I saw that was most interesting to me was that there seemed to be a kind of tacit solidarity among white men across class lines, <laughs> suggesting that the class analysis can't quite capture the the racist and the misogynist dimension of this vote. So just to finish, to go back to where I started, really, so Trump licensed this. He licensed something that is ongoing. Ongoing. There was there was you know, the, the more optimistic liberal perspective, though these things are always there. That there, that there had been a move in another direction, and Trump sort of took the lid off and, and let it out. Yes. But was this? the vehemence of the reaction because things were moving against that point of view? Or is it simply that this, as I said at the start, this is something that's always there waiting to to pounce, do you think? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I don't want to be completely ahistorical about it. It takes different forms in different times. But it is true that, you know, Obama had in recent months acknowledged the rights of transgendered people to have bathrooms that would be appropriate for them. And he thought that that was a question of freedom and a right and a, even a question of equality. He put himself out there uh, on that issue. It's a social issue about which, as you can imagine, people are very divided. And so, yes, there was a revulsion against Obama for those kinds of positions, but also a revulsion against Obama for being uh, an elegant and well-educated black man who stood for the country. And I think there's deep anti-intellectualism in this vote. Uh, there's enormous rancor against the university and against the, the cultural elite on the left. You know, if we say, but this is irrational, but this is contradictory, this is, this, 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 nobody in their right mind can vote in this way. We sound like patronizing snobs. We do. And, and the effective response to us is, yes, it's contradictory, and yes, it's inconsistent, and I don't care, you know. I, I'm not. I'm not living by your standards, and I don't want to hear your rationality anymore. So uh, there's there's a lot of that. It also maybe for me and for those of us who work in education, we see that there's such massive inequalities in education in the United States. Uh, who can afford to move beyond high school into college or university? Increasingly fewer people. And, and those who do are burdened with debts. They're burdened with un that, very often unpayable debts. My my students have unpayable debts. They will die without having paid that debt. Unless Trump leads to such inflation that the debts, <laughs> the debts get inflated away. But yeah. yeah, okay. Well, we tried to find some 
hopeful things to end on, but... Um, yeah, sorry. No, no, it's okay. No, but I do think closing that gap, I mean, affordable education, I think it was the one moment where Hillary and Bernie agreed in the crafting of the democratic platform, and that is going to be an increasingly important issue if we are to become a reasonably well-educated public who can make good decisions in the context of uh, a democracy. So uh, I know that probably makes me sound like an elitist, but I'm also in favor of accessibility to higher education and affordability. And uh, I think that was one of the most um, exciting moments of the democratic platform when some plans were made to, to really try to make higher education affordable. Thank you very much to Judith Butler. Next week, we'll be carrying on all of these conversations, more on Trump, we'll come back to Brexit, more on everything. My name is David Runciman. This has been Talking Politics. And this week, we want to leave the last word to our guest, Judith Butler. A former student of mine works in um, San Quentin's uh, prison university project. That's a major uh, high security prison for men in, in California, not far from where I live. And she goes into work every day and she teaches literature and philosophy and um, works with people who are on death row or who have a very little chance of seeing the full light of day again. In any case, um, she sent me uh, this Auden poem. Um, she was herself a student of literature. Um, and uh, I understand it's been circulating uh, on the web and uh, and I believe it is uh, resonant with our times. Of course, uh, the poem is September 1, 1939, and I'm hoping we're not uh, uh, in 1939, but the truth is we don't know whether we are. Uh, here are the, uh, the final two stanzas of that poem. All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie, the romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street, and the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. There is no such thing as the state, and no one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police. We must love one another or die. Defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies, yet, dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them of eros and of dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.